Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord remains forever let's pray let's come to our Lord and ask his blessing upon our time together Lord we come before you in reverence because you are a great God You are the only true God. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You're the sovereign of the universe. You have made yourself known through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before us, we have the account of his life. Before us, we have the account of his teaching and his claims. And we are so much richer for it. We thank you, Lord. We thank you because you've given us your word, a revelation of who you are, a revelation of who we are. And once eyes have been opened, we cannot but see the chasm and our desperate need to be reconciled with the good and holy God because in and of ourselves we can do nothing more than sin. Your grace and mercy has been flooded upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord who laid down his life that we might live. And for that we are eternally grateful. Give us this afternoon faith to apprehend your word, to hear attentively, to trust that you will meet with us. Pray, Lord, that you will give me, Lord, a, uphold me by your grace. Give me the words to speak. Give me clarity of mind. Lord, I pray that only that which is spoken from this pulpit will be corresponding with your truth. Please, Lord, I pray. We are in need of you. We need to be fed by you. Meet with us today, we ask. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, the Lord's grace upon us has been so rich. In that last week, we brought the 11th chapter of the gospel according to John to a close. We were there for several months, maybe around the six-month mark, and today we begin a, a, new, a new chapter. Now, if you remember the context, how that last chapter ended, because the gospel according to John is chronological. It works in order. And the way the chapter ended last time was the religious leaders and their political leaders had come and had gathered and convened in a council And they'd made that horrible decision, that unjust decision, judging not with righteous judgment as the Lord had told them back in chapter 7, but rather judging with unrighteous judgment in that they declared among themselves that this Jesus needs to die. 
This Jesus movement, in, in particular after the raising of Lazarus, just growing out of control. People's testimony, one with the other, speaking about what he had done. And the power of God upon his son, the Jesus Christ, and, and showing that power that he has, has power over, over death. And, and people could not deny the miracle with their eyes. And, and so his, his, his renown had begun to grow and, and people had begun to follow after him. And, and you couldn't put that to an end. They, they knew, the religious leaders knew, if they continued to allow this to occur, then everything they built with their hands would come tumbling down. This Jesus needs, needs to die. But Jesus, knowing that his hour had not yet come, he, he decides to take his disciples and withdraw from among the people of, of Jerusalem or Bethany or that region and go to a place probably around or perhaps around 20 kilometers northeast of, of Jerusalem, somewhere more rural, somewhere where he's out of the, the arm's reach of the religious and the political leaders who want him, who want him, who want him dead. Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, we are told. Ephraim is the town he goes to and he remains there until it's time that he sets his gaze upon Jerusalem because the hour has come where he begins to, to journey towards Jerusalem to be, to be crucified. Last time we were in the text, last week, I labored to show that Passover, which is Mentioned in the last verses of chapter 11, the Passover is the time that Jesus will make his, his trip back to Jerusalem. But, but this year, this Passover is going to be a, a foundational shift will occur. The countless lambs that are sacrifices in the, in the 1500 years that Passover had been celebrated among the people of Israel, those countless lambs were all types and shadows, if you remember me saying that last week. In other words, in other words, they were the symbolic of something greater. They, they had efficacy, they, well, they had substance at least to some degree to the people in that day in that they were obeying Yahweh, but, but they didn't have efficacy to take away sin. They didn't have efficacy to, to bring salvation to the soul. However, they're all pointing to something greater than, than the, the action, the, the sacrifice itself, greater than the lamb and the blood itself. Every one of those slain lambs, every sacrifice was pointing to someone greater than itself. It's pointing to the once and for all sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every one of these sacrifices were pointing to Christ this year. This year, on this special feast, Passover, that is going to take place in the text that is before us, it will become known that the substance of Passover is none other than Jesus Christ. And now we begin in chapter 12. And the text begins with a timestamp. A timestamp with a reminder of that glorious day to come. Verse 1 tells us six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It's time. It's time. It's time for our Lord to begin that journey. We're not told exactly how much time he'd spent in that town called Ephraim, how much time him and his disciples were there. 
The other Gospels give us some insight as to what took place in that in that time. Not a great deal of insight, but some at least. And it would be maybe weeks, at the very most one or two months, according to my estimation, at the very, very most. But nonetheless, within six days, we're told here, in the beginning of chapter 12, within six days, Passover will occur. And now our Lord's gaze has already been set upon returning to Jerusalem, knowing full well that his return will bring with it his own death. He's already briefed the disciples. Over and again, he's told the disciples, we know that through the synoptic gospels, and he'll continue to tell them over the next six days about what he is going to face in the next few days, the the brunt and the fury of the leaders of Israel who will grab him and, 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 and abuse him and drag him through the street and blaspheme his holy name. But he will be willing to lay down his life for his sheep. For this is the hour for which he has come. This is the hour of his glorification, he will say. So there is a brief window of opportunity yet that remains. In the next few days, in a handful of days, where some will be, will be so privileged to hear our Lord preach once again. To teach once again in the public squares. Because now the hour has come. Jesus is willing to be handed over. And because he's willing to be handed over, caught and seized and sentenced, then he will make a public display and speak to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. But on his way to Jerusalem, he makes the journey to Bethany. He's already been to Jericho. We know that from Luke chapter 19. And now he's, he's come to a place called, called Bethany, the town where Lazarus was raised from the dead. The text tells us that a dinner had been thrown in the honor of our Lord in that town. Now you've got to remember, that town is still buzzing That town is buzzing because of what had taken place only weeks earlier when a man, Lazarus, who seems to be a a reputable man, a a prominent man in that community, when he was was dead and buried for four days and there was mourning and weeping and wailing in that town and then Jesus came and called out, Lazarus, come forth and life and life. Lifeless Lazarus had come forward in, in life that the Lord Jesus Christ had given him. Now, now the town was buzzing with that testimony. And this is the town that holds the, the dinner that we have before us in honor of our Lord. Lazarus is there, we're told. His sisters also, Mary and Martha. Mary is serving, the text tells us, as she does. But the dinner is not likely in her home. You see, the parallel text, the parallel passages are found in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. And, and when we peruse those texts, we, we add a little bit more light to the, to the picture, a more rounded view of what's exactly taking place here in John chapter 12. The dinner is held at a, a man by the name of Simon the leper's home. Who is Simon the leper? Don't know. I don't, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. However, the name Simon the leper seems to suggest something. Not that he is a leper, because there, there wouldn't be any people around him. He'd be cast out of that community. But rather, it seems to suggest that Simon the leper may have been a leper at some time, but maybe, perhaps, healed by our Lord. Now, as I said earlier, it's likely that this dinner is not taking place at Martha's home. The reason why I said that is because there are some who entertain the idea, and this is purely speculation, that Simon 
the leper may have been the father of the siblings, that's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Others try to entertain the idea that it could have been Martha's husband. But that's purely speculation. There is absolutely no evidence to this. Let's just leave it at the dinner was held at Simon the leper's home, and we just don't know who this guy is. And before I move on from the context, as I said earlier, Matthew 26 and Mark 14 are parallel passages of this event. And you may be wondering, what about the narrative in Luke chapter 7? You know, that passage that speaks or titled the sinful woman of the city where very similar things take place. That's a different event, a different place, a different woman, a different home. That's a completely different event. What we have here is the same narrative that takes place in Matthew 26 and and Mark 14, but not Luke chapter 7. I just thought I'd mention that. So they gave a dinner, we're told, for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Love the way Lazarus is mentioned. Lazarus was one of those reclining with who? Who's the him? With Jesus at the table. I'm not sure if John wants us to see this imagery or not. But you can't, I don't know about you, but reading this text, you can't but be flooded with the, with the idea in, in the mind that only a few weeks earlier, Lazarus was dead, buried. And if you remember when, we, when, we, when I exposited that text as we worked our way through chapter 11, if you remember, I said, look, this is, this is a physical reality, but there's something greater that is pointing. There's a picture of the spiritual reality taking place. That yes, Lazarus is dead physically, but, but, but the idea is also that we are dead spiritually speaking. That when Christ calls Lazarus out of the grave and, and life comes into his lifeless body, it's very similar. It's a picture of what takes place with those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And Jesus calls you by name and he lifts you out of the death and the darkness and brings you into the kingdom of the light by the power of the Spirit of God. There's glory in that. And here you have this man who was once dead, who was once dead and now reclining at the table of Jesus. I love that. I love that. Because when we who are spiritually dead or who were spiritually dead are made alive, we're made alive to commune with Jesus. To dine with him at the table, to eat with him, to commune with him, to receive from him, to have fellowship with our Lord. I see that imagery here. However, I don't know if, if John intended it that way, but I thought I'd mention anyway. Only recently was this town, Bethany, beloved, filled with mourning and weeping and wailing. And now joyful bliss they're throwing a party for jesus our lord wept with those who weep and now we see him rejoice with those who rejoice the custom in these days would be that the men would be the ones reclining at the table the women ate elsewhere so it's likely this is what's taking place and 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 i don't want you to envisage this dinner table where we have these 
these men at the table. I don't want you to to envisage uh, your own dinner table at home because the context is different. It's actually what was taking place in the first century when we think about dinner and banquets and feasts uh, around a table. It wasn't in the sense like a table with chairs with backs and everyone sat facing each other in that sense. But more so, it was a a low-lying table. And besides the table, there was benches on each side. And benches were quite wide, no backrests. And the way they reclined at the table is they had their faces, their heads, towards the table where the food was and their feet pointing away from the table. So you have these, around the table, you can have three sides or four with all the men facing the table, which is facing each other, and their feet pointing away, likely sleeping, like a sleeping, a a relaxed atmosphere would be, maybe lying on one of their arms, their their left arm so they can free their right arm so they can scoop the food and, and eat and enjoy this fellowship one with the other. That's how it was. With that in mind, we're told Martha was the one serving. Does that ring a bell? Martha is always serving. She must love to serve. In fact, the first time we're introduced to Martha is back in Luke chapter 10, earlier in Jesus' ministry. Back then, she's serving at her own home and a different meal. But there's something interesting that takes place back then. Because back then we're told her servitude was not without complaining. You remember? You remember when she came to Jesus back then and she said, Jesus, don't you care that my sister has abandoned me and I'm here serving on my own? Paraphrasing, of course. And our Lord's reply was, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What was Mary doing at the time? You remember? We're told earlier in that chapter, Mary, we're told, was at the feet of Jesus. She was at his feet. She was learning. She was absorbing everything he had to say. Just considering every word that came out of, out of her Lord's mouth. And as a result, she was growing in her admiration and her devotion to Jesus. You see, brethren, everything we do is rooted in here. Jesus teaches everything we do, the manifestations of our lives, is always rooted in the content of our own hearts. You see, service is good. In fact, we're commanded to be hospitable and serve one another. But only if it's rooted in love for our Lord. Otherwise, that service is somehow, it's cold, it's mechanical, it's ritualistic, it's, it's meaningless, beloved. And apart from time spent at the feet of our Lord where inevitably you grow in your love for Him. Your service will be begrudging. It will be without joy. But when you consume Christ, His words, His claims, exposed to His love, you listen to His promises, you you experience His tender mercies, you, you begin to realize how unworthy you are. 
And the spirit of entitlement becomes, is, is stripped, is stripped away. Because in that moment, just to be forgiven of your sins is overwhelming. Spending time with the Lord will deepen your love and your devotion for Him. And it will empower you to serve wholeheartedly. You see, neglect Christ and I can guarantee your love for Him and your love for others will diminish. And bickering begins. Complaining begins. And God forbid, gossip and the list goes on. You see, when there is a heart that loves Jesus because it's spent time at his feet, a heart expresses this truth. If only I can be used as a vessel. If only the Lord will use me as an instrument in his hand to be spent completely for his service. That is my joy. It's a matter of love, beloved. It's a matter of love. Martha right now is serving and we don't hear any complaining. Although Mary is not actually by her side right now. But we don't hear any complaining. I think she's grown. I think the Lord has revealed more of himself to Martha. I think she's finally... She's finally come to the point where she realizes Jesus needs to be the focal point of her life. You see, I can be sure about one thing. The contents of the previous chapter, when her brother was sick and then dead and buried, we know that Jesus allowed that to take place for her own good, that he would strengthen her faith that her understanding about this great Savior will grow, that the path that he allowed her to go through, the path of suffering, would produce, produce precisely that result, that she would learn to fix her eyes, her gaze upon Jesus and upon him alone, to be overwhelmed by, by his love and then to overflow with that love. I think Martha has grown in her love for Jesus. And I believe what we see before us is joyful. Joyful servitude, even, even if her sister is not by her side. By the way, where is mother? Or where is Mary, rather? Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment and made pure, uh, ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of perfume. Surprise, surprise, right? Mary is once again where? At the feet of Christ. You know, every time you, or Mary, this Mary, there are many Marys in the Bible. Every time this Mary, the sister of Martha, is mentioned in the Bible, you can guarantee one thing for sure, that she'll spend time at the feet of Christ. I've said previously that this spending time or the posture of, of being at the, the feet is, is one of a, a student or a pupil at the, at the feet of a teacher or a, or a rabbi. It's a, it's a posture of, of learning. That's where learning takes place. You may remember, and I've mentioned before, Paul is described as one who was educated at the feet of who? Gamaliel, that great rabbi in Acts chapter 22. 
It's, it's one, it's a, it's, it's a posture where, where learning take place, where you just, you consume every word that the teacher, that the rabbi is, is speaking when he opens his mouth, you're all ears. That, that's the posture. But there is also another element to the posture of being at one's feet, and it's an, an endearing element. It's one of love and respect. I, I suspect that, that there aren't many people right here that you personally would be comfortable remaining at their feet. I suppose that it would only be those who you love wholeheartedly that you're comfortable sitting at their feet. Intimate relationship is required. And that's what we see here from Mary. That's what we see in what she does at the feet of our Lord. Because what we're told is she breaks the top of an alabaster flask. That terminology is used in the other Gospels. And, and, that, and that flask is, is filled with very expensive, pure nard. And then, the proceed, or the, the, and then she proceeds to, to pour the whole content of that flask or that jar upon the body of Jesus. I say body because in Matthew and both in Matthew and Mark, the emphasis is the anointing on their head. They said that she pours it on, on the head because their emphasis is, is another one. It's, a, it's the kingly anointing that, that they speak to. But, but the apostle John emphasizes the feet. Beloved, there is, there is no conflict between those gospels and what we have here in John. There's more than enough ointment. There's more than enough nard to anoint Jesus' body several times over. So much so that Mary wipes the excess with her hair. A Roman pound of the stuff, we're told. This, this ointment, this nard was extremely potent. A whole Roman pound is what she pours out upon Jesus. Sure, you know, sure, sure, I, I sure hope that Simon likes the smell. It's likely his home will smell that way for the many weeks to come. Beloved, the details of this act of love from the heart of Mary towards our Lord are remarkable. And they're humbling at the same time. I felt crushed in my soul as I meditated upon the contents of these verses throughout this week. I want you now to think of the setting. Jesus and his disciples, Lazarus, Simon, we know that much. Around 15 men are reclining at the table. They're eating. They're drinking. They're enjoying the fellowship they have with Jesus Christ. When Mary walks in, likely discreetly in the background, and she walks in with an alabaster jar or flask in her hand. Its content might not be immediately obvious to, to those who saw her come in, but it doesn't take a genius to know that there's something valuable in that jar. Alabaster flasks, they give that away because the flask itself wasn't cheap. Alabaster is a... Is a a marble-like translucent stone. It's a yellowy white color where, where light comes in. It's not like glass. It's translucent light. You can see light through one, um, one side and the other. And it, it's, a, 
it's it's made out of a, like a, a marble marble type hard material, not quite as hard as marble or stone, but it's quite a quite a strong material, and and it would be chiselled out in the centre to to make a, a a flask out of it or a or a container to contain to contain liquid. It had excellent preserving qualities, and more often than not, alabaster flasks housed very expensive fragrant perfumes and oils. This flask was home to a pound of nard. There weren't many things in the ancient Near East that one could put in a flask that was more expensive than pure, unadulterated nard. It wasn't counterfeit. It wasn't watered down. This was the real thing. And nard in the ancient Near East was the gold standard in fragranced oils. An aromatic, fragrant herb grown in the Himalayas between Tibet and India, once extracted from a flowering plant, it was, it was sealed and then, and then brought back the long journey on camel's back to Israel. And there it was sold for an extremely high price. The pure nard is very, very potent. A few drops is all it takes to make the whole room filled with its fragrance. And it was, as I said earlier, very, very expensive. We don't need to go beyond the text of Scripture to know that it was very costly. For Judas himself gives us that information in verse 5 when he says that the content could have been sold for how much? 300 denarii. Now that might mean nothing to you and I because we don't deal in denarii, we deal in Australian dollar. But let me give you an indication. One denarius was given in exchange for 12 hard hours of labor. 300 denarii was a, was a year's income. Remember, there's no work on the Sabbath. Now don't try to estimate what that's worth by, 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 by bringing the exchange rates into play and trying to do the math. You don't need to do that. Just think of, to yourself, what is a year's income worth? How much money is a year's income right here, right now? The value of the nard that Mary poured out upon the body of Jesus Christ is a year's income worth. And she poured all of it. Every part of it. She had no intention to preserve any of it. She didn't remove the wax seal, which is common on those bottles, but we're told she broke the flask. No turning back. She had no interest in preserving any of that very expensive ointment. And it wasn't spur of the moment either. This was a premeditated act of love on her behalf. And it's needless to say that the onlookers looked upon her with indignation, with outrage. This, this action is scandalous in their eyes. A year worth of income in a moment just like that. John's emphasis is on Judas's own words, but, but Matthew and Mark tell us that it wasn't only Judas who was indignant, but in fact the disciples of Christ, they scolded her, we're told. They said, what a waste. Are you thinking that right now? What a waste. Let me give you a moment for that to sink in. 
today's equivalent, 50, 60, maybe 70 thousand dollars in ointment in a jar or in a flask broken and poured out upon the body of Jesus Christ without a second thought think of what you could do with that money And not even selfishly. Don't think about buying cars for yourself, operating your mobile phones or anything. Just think of what you can do in a benevolent way with that money. How many families would be benefited for the better if you just distribute that money even in our society? Think of how much that difference it would make in a society where most people were below the poverty line. Beloved, often we read this text and, and, and we're sympathetic to the point of Judas and the disciples. When they say, oh, what a waste. That's what, that's what we're thinking. We're almost wanting to hear Jesus rebuke Mary. Mary, thank you so much for your act of love. But Mary, this was a waste. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. We could have extended the, the ministry. We could have done so much with this money. Thank you, Mary. But this is just too much. Because instantly our minds go to hundreds of ways, better ways in our mind to spend that money. If that's you, I ask you, stop. Stop. Stop thinking that way. Don't do that. I want you to pause right now and take this in. Pause with our critical thinking about what we would do with the money, even in benevolent ways. Pause with our critical thinking and our rebukes towards this extravagance, this huge, uh, unfathomable waste that we may be thinking in our minds. Stop with our thinking, beloved. Now I want you to consider Mary's heart. Take your mind off the stuff. Take your mind off the ointment. Take your mind off the value. Take your mind off all that. I want you to consider Mary's heart. What we do always, without exception, is rooted in the heart. I said that a moment earlier. So now let's think about Mary's heart for a moment. What must her heart look like to act in that way? How great is her love for Jesus to act in that way, irrespective if you think it's a waste, irrespective if you would have done other things, even just given it up for other purposes. I want you to think of how great is her love for this Jesus. To break a flask, knowing full well its total value and pour the whole lot without reservation upon Jesus' body. Without a second thought, without a second thought, how great is her love for Jesus? Park your thoughts and consider that. Beloved, if you do that, if the Spirit of God gives you the grace to open your eyes and to answer that question, I could almost guarantee that you'll feel the same shame I felt when I was preparing. Because any response of our heart in dealing with this narrative 
any thought that comes to our mind apart from complete breaking down in humility before our good and holy God. Anything other than a convicted heart. Beloved, anything other than a wholehearted appeal to the Lord for forgiveness of our sins, of our indifference, and an appeal to deepen our love for Him. If If you're experiencing any other response right now, beloved, I hate to say it, but you've missed the point. You've missed the point. This text, this narrative is not given to us so that we would determine the best way to spend our money. The text is deeper than that. It's more foundational than that. Beloved, reading this text, we're not meant to come to Scripture and just read like a story. We're meant to believe by faith that when we come to Scripture, we encounter God and God, He does a work in us. He reveals who He is and He reveals who we are. When we come to texts like this and we consider this lavish love of Mary, we ought to think to ourselves, where am I in this? Because this text shines an all-revealing spotlight in the depth of our heart and he asks a piercing question, how much does Jesus mean to you? To you individually. How much do you really love him? Because your answer to those questions, if sincere, if the Lord gives grace for you to see the depth of your heart, the answer to those questions will give you an inclination of what you're prepared to sacrifice for him. You see, Mary wasn't thinking health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This was not an act of an investment. Mary wasn't hoping that somehow she'll pour the contents of that, that flask and then she will receive materially 30 and 60 and 100 fold. This was purely, purely a sacrificial expression of the heart. One that is completely overtaken and overwhelmed by the love and the gratitude for Jesus Christ and what he has done for Mary with no thought to any consequences. A thousand things she could have done with that money. And many of them would have been good things that she could have done with the money. But Mary didn't care. It didn't matter. All those things didn't matter to Mary. In her heart, there was nothing in that moment that was more fitting and more worthy than to pour the contents of this ridiculously expensive nard all upon the body of Jesus Christ. And that's all there is to it. She valued Jesus more than her prized possession. Jesus meant more to her than anything she owned. 
She didn't care what others thought. She didn't care about what others thought. Because her feelings for this Jesus, her intimate feelings, the disposition of her heart towards this Jesus, only she knows, and listen to me brethren, that's sacred ground. That's sacred ground. How dare anyone judge her for the expression of love that's rooted in a heart of love for her Savior. Reckless abandon. That's a term I hadn't heard of in years as I prepared for this text or this sermon, those words just kept coming to my mind. Reckless abandon. Expression of love towards the one who saved her. It's the expression of love and gratitude and appreciation towards the one who raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. It's the expression of love towards Jesus who came to her and with tears in his eyes proved to her beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves her. And he's familiar with grief and sorrow, but not any grief and sorrow. Her grief and her sorrow who came by her side. It's an expression of love to her Lord. It's an expression of love to her King. This good shepherd has shown her and demonstrated to her heart that he loves her. By faith, her sins have been forgiven. And now she's acting as one who is loved by him and loves him and doesn't care what anyone else thinks. I love him more than I, more than anything I own, is what she's saying. He means more to me than this expensive oil. It's likely the most expensive thing that she has. I don't know. I'm hard-pressed to find anything in my home, any one thing in my home worth more than a tenth of that. Jesus is worthy. My Lord is more precious. Jesus is my treasure. As I meditated upon these words, beloved, I kept asking myself, would you do it? Would you, would you do it, Bernie? Would, would you do it? Let me ask you that question. Would you do it? Brother, I, I don't own a bottle of very expensive nard, so I, I can't tell you, I can't be truthful in answering that question. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is there anything in your possession that you're not willing to give up for the sake of Christ? It's just a question for your heart. You don't have to respond physically, but it is a question that we must, we must all 
answer. Are there any stuff that you have that is so dear to your heart that you would put in the category all these bits but not this one? This is something I'm not prepared to give up for my Saviour. How confronting. How offensive to the flesh are these words? So let me confess. I'm naturally more inclined to be that guy that says, sell the nard and give it away to the poor or anything else, to another cause. And I can think of at least a hundred that are in my mind right now that I would say in my mind are good and worthy causes. That's not because I'm wiser than Mary to be truthful. It's because I believe her love for our Saviour is deeper than mine. This sacrifice, this lavish love is in another category all, all together. But it's one we must, beloved. It's one we must pursue because he is worthy. And pursuing of that love begins at the feet of Jesus and it ends at the feet of Jesus. For Mary, no lasting significance in her offering other than to show him that she loves him and that she appreciates him for all that he's done. Mary begins to pour out the ointment upon the body of Christ and once that ointment is poured out, the the last drop, that's it. That's it. That's where it, that's where it ends. Beloved, think about that. Giving, giving donations and for a, for a, for a building or a church building and, and you don't get to see that money again, but you, but you see the building constructed and you see with your eyes what you've done. These are good things, giving donations maybe for brothers and sisters in need, which are, which is something we ought to do and, and, but you're able to see what you've done. You give clothing, you see them wear it and you, you see the product. This is not, this is not taking place here. Mary is pouring out this ointment and once she's done, you see it no more. It's simply an expression from her heart to tell her Savior, I love you. That's it. I love you. It's one thing to say you love him. It's another thing to show that we love him. You know, our testimony is useless unless it's coupled, unless it's coupled with actions. Our faith is useless unless it produces fruit. The Apostle James says in James chapter 2, faith without deeds is what? Dead. But you're not, you cannot manufacture this type of love. But there is a way to receive it and to grow in it. You see, the depth of your love is directly correlated with how much Jesus means to you. I'll say that again. The depth of your love for the Lord is directly correlated with how much Jesus means to you. 
Let me derive that from the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Let me give you two examples. You don't have to open your Bibles. Let me read them for you. The kingdom of heaven, he writes, is is like treasure hidden in a field. Listen to the words of Christ. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells some of what he has and buys that field. Are you awake? That's not what the text says. A treasure in the field, and then the man goes away and in joy. This is not, okay, this is joyful giving. In joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Wow. Did you know what that means? That means he has nothing apart from this treasure. It means he doesn't have the treasure on one hand and a few bits here and there. It means he's, he's abandoned absolutely everything in order to go and pursue this treasure. And the second example is like it. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold, again, all that he had. And he bought it. The kingdom of God, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is where the king reigns. The king is the treasure of the kingdom of God. The king is everything. And although these, these parables are meant to, parables are meant to teach something. You don't want to abuse a parable by taking it beyond what Jesus intended. Although these parables, that they, they teach that the merchants sell all that they have to purchase a pearl or a hidden treasure, which is symbolic like the kingdom of God. It speaks of the, of the parable, the parable speaks of, of the attitude of the heart. That nothing should be more valuable in your heart and in your mind than the kingdom. Nothing should be more value in your heart and your mind than the king of the kingdom. All my possessions don't compare to the splendor of this kingdom and the splendor of this king. But don't take away from these parables that somehow you purchase your way into that kingdom. Careful. That will be an abuse of the words of Jesus Christ. So that's not what he's saying. Hear this. Entrance price into the kingdom is not with silver or gold, but with the shed blood of the king himself. Oh, that's scandalous. If it's scandalous to see Mary break open an alabaster flask and pour the contents of value of over a year's wages upon Jesus, and that's what they were thinking, this is far more scandalous that the king, the eternal God, would become man, and the entrance price for anyone entering into his kingdom requires that he first lay down his life as a sacrifice. Lord, give us faith to believe this. You don't get into the kingdom by giving up all your stuff. Mary doesn't get into the kingdom because she poured out the full contents of that alabaster flask. No, entrance into the kingdom is not with the treasure you've given up, but the treasure the king has given up. His own life. He laid down his life. That's the purchase price. His own blood. There is, there is something far more valuable than stuff, beloved. 
even your best stuff, and it's illustrated for us in Scripture. Matthew 16, 26 gives us a hint. For what will profit it, sorry, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see the point? Give me all the world's stuff is what Jesus is saying. You name it. An alabaster flask of pure nard. Give me a million of those. Give me those big boats, those yachts, those big homes. Give me all the land. Give me the deeds of the world, the globe as it is. Give me the deeds and let me sign as a new owner. You give that to me in exchange for my soul, for my life, and it's a bad deal. That's what Jesus is saying. Because your life, my life, is far more valuable than all the stuff in this world. There's nothing more valuable than than your own life to yourself and mine to myself. That's what Jesus says. Unless you're prepared, unless you're willing to give up everything for my sake, you're not worthy of me. He says, unless you give your mother and your father all these things, and says, even your own self, even your own life. Our Lord gave His life. Our Lord gave His life, Christian. He laid down His life for your soul. And His life is infinitely more valuable than yours. He is God. The good shepherd, the king of the kingdom has shed his blood to purchase his sheep from the realm of darkness. Beloved, the greatest act of love, the absolute greatest act of love is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get it? Love spurs from and deepens in our appreciation for what for His love and what He has done for us. That's where love spurs from. And our love can deepen in the Savior when we meditate, when we consider what He has done for us, what, what the Savior is to us. And primary, the, the, the top of that list, beloved, and the most important is this, that by faith, if you've come to Jesus, you have been forgiven of your sins. That that bundle, that load, the forgiveness, that God's wrath is no longer upon me. I've been, I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven of my sins. And as a result, I have life. He's purchased life for me. That empowers, that empowers my soul to love Him. There's nothing more valuable than my life. He has saved my life. Therefore, where should the disposition of my heart be? All my stuff, all that I have, beloved, is pale in comparison to what He has done upon that cross of Calvary. Therefore, if the Lord has given you the grace and the mercy and the eyes to see and the ears to see, you should be able to stand back and say, Wow, my treasure is nothing material or tangible in this world. My treasure is Christ. Everything I have is worthless by comparison to Jesus Christ. 
He's the true treasure. Jesus is the true treasure of the soul. Even, even my strength, even if I'm not talking about my stuff, even if I'm talking about, about me, my, the things I've, I've accomplished, the, my strengths, my trophies, my accolades, my glory, it's barely fitting to be used as a rag to clean his feet. Mary wiped his feet with her hair. 1 Corinthians 11.15 Her hair is her glory. He's worthy of all my stuff. There's nothing I treasure more than him in everything I own. And there's nothing in me that I treasure more than him as well. Humbly I come before him and I say... You are everything. You are my treasure, O oh Lord. Is he worthy? Let me bring this to a close, beloved. Right now, right now there'll be two groups of people. Two groups of people who fit in two separate categories. After hearing a sermon like this or listening or reading this text and the extravagant, extravagant love of Mary upon the Lord, which is the expression of a heart that's been changed by Him, we can stand back and we can be on one side or the other, either Either all this is foreign to our ears. We, we hear, we understand the grammar, we understand the words, but, but I don't understand that type of love. I, I don't understand that the nature of that love. I, I hear the sacrifice of Mary, but I'm, but I'm not really prepared to do that. And, I, and I, don't, I don't think I even know how to sacrifice for him. I don't even think I have a reason to sacrifice for him. That might be one of the categories, and that, and that, that means that, that, that you're, still, you're still in judgment, you're still under the wrath of God. That means that you haven't come to know Christ, that you haven't repented of your sins, that you haven't been forgiven. Two categories, and they're both, they're both, both categories have the, same, have the same remedy. Brother, I don't understand this type of love. If you don't understand that type of love, it could be because you haven't received Having been the receiving end that comes through being forgiven, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, if that's you right now, you're in a very bad place. But today could be the day of salvation. And my message to you is simply this repent. And believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You could be in another category. That you are truly a child of God. That you know you've been forgiven of your sins. That you know you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. That you know the wrath of God has been lifted. That you've been cleansed. That you've been forgiven. That you've been united in Christ. But this is... This is not quite your experience. 
you, you understand the nature of this love, but the depth is nowhere near where you are. Beloved, my message to you is the same. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, come to where Mary learnt from the Saviour. Come to the feet of Jesus Christ. Come to His Word. Come to Him in prayer. The, the, the beauty of the Word is this. Sometimes we read and it's, it's a double-edged sword that pierces straight into our heart. And if we're honest, we say, Lord, I, I don't think that's me. It reveals, it reveals the heart. And that's good because the same God, believer, Christian, the same God that convicts your heart of sin, the same God that convicts your heart that your love is not where it needs to be with Christ, that you may have actually allowed the world to capture your heart, that the affections of your heart are towards this world, that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life has, have taken a grip on you, that your attention, that your focus has been taken off the Savior, off His line, and, and you've been drifting into this world, thinking that the world and the things of this world, the material things of this world, can somehow give you some joy or some happiness. It's a mirage. It's a mirage. It's temporal at best. It will leave you hungry and high and dry. It's deception. The same Spirit that brings conviction to your soul and says you've gone down the wrong path. You've been veering into the darkness. You've departed from the life. Praise be to His name. The same Spirit that brings conviction to your soul is the same Spirit which takes your eyes, spiritually speaking, and turns them to Jesus Christ. And reminds you once again that if you have sinned, confess your sin. And there is one who is faithful and just in Jesus Christ to cleanse your sin, to forgive your sins, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So my message to you, believer, brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, my message is repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. Whether you're in the Lord or whether you're not in the Lord, my job is easy. I'm not a very smart person, but I know this. The remedy for both is Jesus. So I'm going to point your eyes to Jesus. Because when you come to Him, He knows what you need. He knows your heart. And He knows first and foremost, it's sin that obstructs your relationship and your fellowship with Him. The only way we grow in our love to Christ is for us to spend time at his feet, to meditate upon his truths, to consume his promises, to recognize he's forgiven my sins and he who has been forgiven much loves much. Turn your eyes upon Christ.